You're listening to Jason Lee Willis's podcast series, Examining Moses, an out-of-the-box look into the life and lore of Moses. Episode 5, Son of a What? The mystery of Canaan bothers me. Long ago, back in the book of Genesis, Jacob and sons were pastoral farmers tending their flocks in some of the best real estate on earth. Canaan had mountains and valleys, large lakes, and swiftly flowing rivers, and cedar forests that would have made the air a joy to breathe. Heck, it was a land that flowed with milk and honey. Canaan rules. Of course, that was approximately, oh, no wait, exactly 430 years ago, the day Moses departed Egypt. 430 years before Moses, the world experienced a catastrophe on a global scale that forced Jacob and his sons to relocate to Egypt, where Joseph had prepared contingencies. Here's my first question. Why didn't Jacob go back after the seven years of famine? Now, the famine was precisely predicted. We had seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. How could you tell it was exactly seven years of famine? Well, conditions must have improved. Famine over. Canaan is not that far away from Egypt that the weather patterns would have been so dramatically different, leaving you with the answer that A, Egypt was just better, or B, something was wrong with Canaan. Of course, a major complication happened when the Hyksos invaders came and turned everybody not Hyksosian, is that a word? <laughs> into slaves. When the Hyksos were defeated, those Hebrews alive had been born in Egypt, their home away from home. Yet, despite the escalation of tensions between the Thebans and Hebrews, colonies did not flare up in Canaan. Think of the American South prior to the Civil War. Slaves ran away to the North on a regular basis, bringing you the Underground Railroad system. For Southern slaves, they were willing to leave a bad place to go to a place they didn't even know. For the Hebrew slaves, they were also in a bad place with a God-given paradise waiting for them just a few hundred miles away. Aside from the kind-hearted prostitute Rahab, there were zero allies living in Canaan when Joshua rolled in, leaving you again with two options. A. Egypt was better. Not or B, something was wrong with Canaan. Let's talk about life 40 years before the Exodus. Moses had just killed an Egyptian and needs to run away. He can go anywhere, but instead, he decides to go to Midian, which is just fine. But why didn't he go to Canaan? Moses was a leader and warrior in his prime. He could have gone Samson on the locals, winning a hill, then a valley, then a region, and then the whole territory back in the name of God. Nope, he went to Midian. Dramatically, I need to understand the motivations of not only Moses, but of every single Hebrew not willing to return 
to Canaan. The purpose. This is not just about slavery. If it was, God would have flipped the tables and given Moses victory in a great civil war, robbing the Thebans of their rule and giving Egypt to the Hebrews. Yet God didn't. Let's take a look at Exodus 3, verse 4, and see if I can read the old King James. God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes and off thy feet, for the places whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters. For I know their sorrows, and I am come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of the land into a good land and a large, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel is come unto thee, me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppress them. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses said unto God, Who am I, that I should go unto Pharaoh, and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly I will be with thee, and this shall be a token unto thee, that I have sent thee, Thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt. Ye shall serve God upon this mountain. God wanted them to go to Canaan. It was his plan. Granted, it took another 40 plus years before it happened, but it was already a land that flowed with milk and honey. It should have been a draw, but it wasn't. So what was wrong? We can see the answer with the report of the Hebrew spies. Numbers 13, verse 21. So they went up and searched the land from the wilderness of Zin unto Rehob, as men come to Hamath. And they ascended by the south and came unto Hebron, where Ayaman, Shishai, and Talmai, the children of Anak, were. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. And they came unto the brook of Eshel, and cut down from thence a branch with one cluster of grapes, and they bare it between two upon a staff, and they brought of the pomegranates and of the figs. The place was called the brook of Eshel, because of the cluster of grapes which the children of Israel cut down from thence. And they returned from searching of the land after forty days. And they went and came to Moses, and to Aaron, and to all the congregation of the children of Israel. 
and unto the wilderness of Paran, to Kadesh, and brought back word unto them, and unto all the congregation, and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, and said, We come unto the land whither thou sent us, and surely it floweth with milk and honey. And this is the fruit of it. Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land, and the cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men that went with him said, We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched under the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it, it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all of the people that saw in it are men of great stature. And there we saw the giants, the son of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers. And so we were in their sight. So there is quite a bit to unpack in this section. Remember that Moses picked the biggest, bravest men from the 12 tribes. So these 12 spies are the elite warriors from all of Israel, not just some scrubs. Upon returning, 10 of the 12 are terrified of what they saw. And despite having the God of the 10 plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea and the Ark of the Covenant, they do not think it is a fight they can win. What? First, they make a reference to the children of Anak, as if we know who the heck Anak is, which we don't. It's bad. Very bad. But we'll just ignore it and look at the other facts. Canaan has gone from fertile pastures to a land that is fortified and strong, which is a tad anachronistic compared to ancient Egypt where we do have cool pyramids and temples, but no walled fortresses. What did the people of Canaan need the tall walls for? It makes a quick reference to the Amalekites, Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites, as if listing off English, French, Spanish, and Swedish. While the Hittites have historical reference, the other two, Jebusites and Amorites, have a few non-biblical references, and the Amalekites have a downright bizarre connotation, which we'll talk about in chapter 10. The walls are not the only problem, and the spies describe the Canaanites as being, quote, stronger than we, which is surprising considering these are slaves of the field, and probably pretty ripped after generations of slave labor but they are big. Next, we have this juicy nugget, eating. Now, depending on your translation, uh, this is personification of the land by saying the land eats its inhabitants, 
which is paradoxical when you remember that the land is flowing with milk and honey. So if the general environment is paradise, what is doing the eating? Eating your inhabitants? If the inhabitants are the Canaanites, then who or what is eating them? Is this cannibalism or worse? The third reason for the spies freaking out builds slowly. Again, 12 warriors go to Canaan and suddenly develop a massive inferiority complex. They claim that the inhabitants are strong and men of great stature before finally coming out and saying they felt like grasshoppers compared to them? Hyperbole? (laughs) At its minimal, they are uh, expressing that they uh, can't win because the dudes are big. Now, this is coming from an army of 600,000 bricklayers with an Ark of the Covenant. They are intimidated. Unfortunately, the big metaphor has even more clues once you start peeling it apart. Again, leaving Anak alone, there is another coded reference that should be jaw-dropping. Nephilim. Didn't see that? Well, my King James translation is a bit underwhelming in literal translation. Instead of using the word Nephilim, Nephilim, they jump the gun and use the word giants, which I get. The spies were saying they saw big guys, and then connected it to the ancient legend of the Nephilim from Genesis 6. Which was, again, see my episode 1, approximately 1400 years earlier. Yeah, we saw those guys. Facing your giants. Okay, I get that giants are pretty fantastical and a bit embarrassing to modern Christians. Back in the 1600s, the King James Version writers just dropped giants right on the page, whereas modern translations will put the old Hebrew word Nephilim on the page and let the reader deal with the fantastic, uh, fantasy connotations. You know, heck, the, uh, the King James Version left the word unicorn in the Bible, rhino or real. Uh, bringing up fallen angels is no less fantastical than giants. But I get how this could give modern Christians pause. So we'll deal with the elephant in the room. Option A, flat lies. Yes, the spies could have been fibbing. For whatever reasons, the spies did not want to reclaim the homeland and wanted to either stay in the wilderness until the manna ran out or go back to Egypt. To accomplish this, they made up a story about cannibal giants to freak out the Hebrews. Uh, So, it worked. But why did Joshua and Caleb not only agree to the lie, but then try to convince the people that they could beat the giants? It would have been easier to say, not true, regular dudes, we can kill them all. Option B, 
hyperbole. Okay, so if Joshua was short at uh, five foot tall, and a Hebrew grasshopper was really big at five inches tall, then these giants would have been about 50 feet tall? Fee-fi-fo-fum. They were big, but thanks to hyperbole, they were stretching the truth a bit. Big dudes. Really big dudes. We felt like Muggsy Bogues taking on Shaquille O'Neal. Grasshoppers. Option C. Genetic superiority. On the uh, isolated continent of North America, there was a Native American tribe living in the Midwest known as the Osage, or Osage uh, who painter George Catlin described as being the, quote, tallest race of men in North America. This isolated tribe averages six and a half feet tall to seven feet tall and cause all their neighbors to greatly fear them. Is this what Joshua and Caleb saw? A genetically superior race that was just bigger and better than anybody else in the region? Remember, conspiracy theory alert, that the Hyksos people left Egypt in defeat and might have settled in empty Canaan. If these guys are the Hyksos 2.0, then remember that some theorists believe the Hyksos migration connected to Aryan migrations, which is where Hitler would have claimed Canaanites, nine Atlanteans. But Hitler was nuts. While we're um, being nutty, consider the Bigfoot Grendel idea. What if these folks in Canaan were the last of some ancient race? As an English teacher, I teach Beowulf, which has Grendel described as the last of an ogre race descended from Cain. I suppose you could throw in the legends of Bigfoot or Yeti also, but you still have to account for the biblical flood, so don't get too carried away. Option D. Metaphors for evil. It is all poetry. The size of the man is equal to the amount of evil he has in his heart. So the Canaanites were not physically larger, but just really, really nasty people. We are too nice they are big boys. How can we defeat such meanies? Eesh. Option E. Supernatural byproducts. God is once again going to get himself directly involved because giants are not part of his natural plan. As Moses writes, uh, he did write Genesis too. The fallen angels caused problems before the flood after the flood. All flesh was killed in the flood, which meant all of the giants before the flood died. So what brought them back? The fallen angels, who were not flesh and blood, but could still create or modify life, uh, survived the flood and are once again about to be spanked by the creator for being bad you look at the actual Hebrew word rather than the correct but ill-timed connotation, the spies saw 
fallen angels, the daddies, as well as the giants, the abominable kids. While a uh, well-placed spear through the eye should be able to take out a giant, how the heck do you fight a fallen angel? This would freak out the bravest hero. Meet Enoch. Unfortunately, there's not much known about the reference that the spies make. It seems as if the Hebrews knew all about Enoch, but that we've lost much of the meaning in the years since. Verse 33, And there we saw the giants, the son of Enoch, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers. And so we were in their sights. Well, it seems as if Enoch is either the descendant of fallen angels and thus a giant, or he is the fallen angel and his children are the giants. Either way, Enoch caused the jaws to drop. He is the reason the spies assume they will lose. The Hebrew word Enoch, A-N-A-K, apparently has a few different options. First, it means giant, which from this context makes sense. Uh, it also has the connotation for neck or, or necklace. Uh, either the, the long necks or neck chains is a common interpretation. But here, the spies claim to see Enoch. Problem. He's really old. There isn't a nice genealogy chart for Enoch, so I'll have to piece this together. Joshua chapter 15 verse 13 reads, And unto Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he gave a part among the children of Judah, according to the commandment of the Lord to Joshua. Even the city of Arba, the father of Anak, which city is Hebron. And Caleb drove thence the three sons of Anak, Shishai, Ahiman, and Talmai, the children of Anak. So, Anak had kids and also had a father, Arba. Let's trace down some lines about Arba. Joshua chapter 14, verse 15. And the name of Hebron before was Kirjath Arba, which Arba was a great man among the Anakims, and the land had rest from war. So Arba had a place named after him. Let's track down that hard-to-say name, Kirjatharba. Genesis. Yes, I just said Genesis. Chapter 23, verse 2. And Sarah died in Kirjatharba. The same in Hebron is the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Sarah... Abraham and Sarah. Kirjath Arba was already a place when Sarah was old. Wait a second. 
the BC and the Anomundi dates will be a little confusing, but keeping it approximate, Sarah died several hundred years prior to the spies seeing Anak. If Arba was alive or predated Sarah, then how old is Anak? Just as Arba in Kirja Tharba is referenced numerous times, so too are the Anakim, the descendants of Anak. By the time Joshua is done cleaning up Canaan, they are all gone. But there is a curious connection back to Genesis that I'd like to show. Deuteronomy 2.10 The Amims dwell therein in times past, a great people, and many, and tall as the Anakims, which also were counted giants, as the Anakims. But the Moabites call them Amims. The Horims also dwell in Sair before time, but the children of Esau succeeded them when they had destroyed them from before them and dwelt in their stead. Translation Anakim equals giants, Amim equals giants. Before we chase down the Amim, I need to note that the King James Version jumped the gun once again and slapped in the word giant. However, the Hebrew word is Raphaim, which does have a giant connotation, just like Nephilim. Raphaim will lead us to some other cool verses also. This is a big can of worms the spies just opened up. Before I go down the rabbit hole, let's finish up with Anak. There seems to be three generations of Anakim, yet they are big trouble for the spies. As a mythology fan, I have a stray thought. In Babylonian mythology, there was something called the Ajiji. The Ajiji were ten ruling gods, or fallen angels, depending on how you see it, who uh, are described in the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is flood lore, as siring children. Their children were giants who helped build the Tower of Babel and other impressive works right after the flood. Their names the Anunnaki. Anakim? Anunnaki? I know it's a stretch. But what if the legends overlapped? If Arba was a fallen angel, or a Gigi, then his child would have been Anak, a giant, or Anunnaki. The Hebrew spies would have seen living legends right out of the Epic of Gilgamesh in the pre-flood world. Speaking of pre-flood world, let's go there next. Giants in Genesis. I'm going to split hairs now. The word Nephilim in Hebrew means the fallen ones. Based on all the Hebrew legends and lores surrounding this section of Genesis, 
I'm in the camp that believes this to be the fallen angels. When I read Genesis 6, this is how I read it. Genesis 6-4. The giants, the Nephilim, the fallen angels, were on the earth, the pre-flood earth, in those days, the pre-flood days. And afterwards, um, Moses' life, when the sons of God, the fallen angels, came into the daughters of men, human women, and bore children, the genetic giants, to them. These were the mighty men, Gabor, the giants, who were of old, legends, men of renown, still talking about them centuries later. So that's how I read it. Now, there are a lot of factors for God destroying the earth in 1656 Anno Mundi. Wickedness? Lots. <laughs> this is a generalization given, but it is still hard for me to fathom such an evil world when compared to the violence and evil of, I don't know, 1900 to 1980? Look at how many people died under Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, etc., etc. Genocide by the millions. So, how bad was life in 1656 Anu Mundi? Yet, there are other theories for God putting Noah on the ark. Population control, cosmic catastrophe, ecological preservation. But, right in the middle of Genesis 6 is the strange account of the Nephilim. It's in the heart of the explanation of wickedness. Centuries later, it is the, in the heart of the Exodus story. So, what's going on? Using those words given in Genesis, the literal defense of giants is not very strong. Ignoring the word Nephilim, some folks argue that sons of God could mean the line of Seth and daughters of men could mean the line of Cain. Sure. Now, I need an explanation on how the line of Cain survived the flood. Another ark? There are a lot of biblical passages that seem to support the fallen angels' giants theory. First, Job 1 verse 6 introduces the sons of God along with Satan presenting himself before uh, God and then later in Job 38, 7 connects sons of God with the morning stars who sang together at the beginning of creation. Job is a pretty old book in the Bible, so I think this is what Moses meant when establishing his sons of God line. Also in Genesis 6, you see the word Gabor which King David later uses in 2 Samuel chapter 23 as a nickname for his crew of killers. What did the Gabor kill? Giants. There are a bunch of Gabor uses, although not always in the context of giants, but quite often in the context of big evil. The curious turn for my investigation into giants came when I read the book of Jude, verse 6. And the angels 
which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation. He hath reserved an everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. I got curious. When did God lock up angels? What did they do? They left their estate? There isn't much from Jude to explain this reference, but he went and stepped in something stickier a few verses later when he said in verse 14, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. Enoch said what? See, the problem is, Enoch did not speak in the book of Genesis. So I quickly went to my footnotes to see um, what is going on. Yep, there is a book of Enoch. Now, there are tons of obvious reasons why this apocryphal book is not in our Bible. We do not even know if the modern discovery of the ancient text is the same as the text Jude knew way back in the first century. Yes, they found the same verse, but 99% of the rest could be maliciously wrong. Even though the book of Enoch is not scripturally sound, it does provide context and juxtaposition. So let's take a look at what Jude was referencing. First, the book of Enoch clearly expands on Genesis 6 by explaining that there were indeed fallen angels who reproduced with human women, there's no scientific details given, uh, their children were horrible giants with references to, the, uh, to being 300 feet tall. Their nicknames were either translated as, quote, biters or, quote, bastards. Either is bad. These giants devoured everything in their path. And as a result, the uh, flood helped eliminate them and gave humans a new fighting chance on Earth 2.0. Giggle, giggle. 300-foot giants? Yes. <laughs> there are some LOL moments, uh, but also some very intriguing concepts dropped in this ancient text, which was discovered in Ethiopia. Ethiopia. Land of Tharbus, Queen of Sheba. It's like Disneyland to Israel's Disney World. Here is Enoch chapter 15, verse 8. Now the giants, who have been born of spirit and flesh, shall be called upon earth evil spirits, and on earth shall be their habitation. Evil spirits shall proceed from their flesh, because they were created from above. From the holy watchers was their beginning and primary foundation. Evil spirits shall they be upon earth and spirits of the wicked shall they be called. The habitations of spirits of heaven shall be in heaven, but upon earth shall the habitation of terrestrial spirits who are born on the earth. The spirits of the giants shall be like clouds.
demons. So a fallen angel creates an abomination and upon its death, it has no place in heaven or hell. So it lingers upon the earth as a cloud. Think of the demon-possessed man Jesus met on the Sea of Galilee. Legion. Why? Because they were many. Now, why would a once proud angel want to base itself by possessing a human? A former giant, however, born of flesh and now eternally spirit, they would want back in flesh. Remember their fear of the abyss? Perhaps that is what Jude references with the everlasting chains of darkness. Daddy's in prison. Don't send me there. So Jesus cast them into a herd of pigs and cliff. <laughs> Clouds. This is where the rabbit hole went even deeper. Let's look back at some of those names mentioned by Joshua and Moses. Nephilim, the fallen. Anakim, the long-necked giants. Amin, frighteners, also giant. Zamzumim, the mumblers, also giant. Raphaim, shades or spirits of the dead. I find it interesting that in this six degrees of separation that a dead giant turns into a cloud and in the text involving giants the Hebrew word Raphaim is still used in the era of Moses and Joshua. Now I could go on for several <laughs> several more minutes if not hours about the giants in the Old Testament so I'll let you um, look up some things and investigate for yourself. Here's some spots to look, though. Uh, Genesis 6 references the Nephilim, or the Gabor. Genesis 10, verse 8, talks about how Nimrod was a Gabor. Genesis 14, 5, talks about how the kings subdued the Amim and the Raphaim. Genesis 15 references how Lot was given the land of the Raphaim, which is Moab. Numbers 13, 28 mentions the Anakim and the Nephilim. Deuteronomy 2, chapter 9, I'm sorry, that is Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses 9 and 11, talk about the Amim, the Anakim, and the Raphaim in Moab. Deuteronomy 3 brings up this really cool guy by the name of King Og, and how, based on his bed, he's a giant. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 1 and 3, uh, bring up this burning fire wiping out most of the giants as Joshua is crossing the River Jordan. Uh, Joshua 11, verse 21, talks about how Joshua kills the rest, and there's another King Og reference. First Chronicles chapter 20 details that giants apparently have six fingers and six toes. And then, of course, 1 Samuel brings us the story of Goliath. Now, if you like epic, it is a fun study. Uh, before I get back to Moses and the Hebrews, I would just like to offer a theory. When Genesis 6 claimed the Nephilim were on the earth before the flood and also after the flood, it implies that all the giants died. Did the dead giants become demons? 
or did the flood wipe them all away? Regardless, there were again giants after the flood, meaning the text of Genesis claiming all flesh died was wrong, or the fallen angels did not count or die. Now, remember Enoch and Jude. In the ancient tale, right before the flood, angels came and destroyed the giants and then threw the fornicating angels in a pit. Now, does Jude and Legion make sense? However, just as Satan escaped judgment, I believe other fallen angels escaped the abyss punishment. If fallen angels existed after the flood, they would either be bowed and sheepish after seeing what happened to their work slash children, or they'd be vengeful. What do we see in the Bible? Nimrod, just two generations after the flood. Not sure if he is a giant or a giant hunter, so let's look elsewhere. Abraham and Lot. The rescue of Lot overshadows the war going on. The war? Apparently, a coalition of kings went to deal with the Amim and Rephaim. Afterwards, the coalition broke up and they turned on each other, with Lot as collateral damage. That was just a few hundred years after the flood and dealt with by humans. A thousand years after the flood, Canaan is infested by giants. It will take Moses, Joshua, the Ark of the Covenant, 600,000 warriors, and a pillar of fire to restore the milk of the land of milk and honey, only to be finished a few hundred years later by King David and his giant hunters. So what happened? Before I deal with our prime suspects, let's look at the ending. Revelation 9, verse 13. And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel, which had the trumpet, Loose the four angels, which are bound in the great river Euphrates. And the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year, for to slay the third part of men. And the number of the army of the horsemen were... 200,000,000, ,000, and I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision, and them that sat on them, having breastplates of fire, and jacinth, and brimstone. And the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions, and out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone. By these three was the third part of men killed, and by fire and by the smoke and by the brimstone which issued out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails were like unto serpents and had heads, and with them they do hurt. <laughs> Spooky stuff. But who are those four angels? And where did they get their weirdo army? Again, this is not yet Judgment Day. So these are not the angels of Jude. So where did these guys come from? 
Why did they get locked up and what did they do? Why such a terrestrial prison? Seriously, Iraq? I have no answers, but I do have a theory. Bad Angel A? Arba, father of the Longneckers. Bad Angel B? The Amin, the Frighteners. Bad Angel C? The Zamzumim, the Mumblers. Bad Angel D? Mm, not sure. Uh, the Horites? The Rafame? Four angels? Four types of giants. Wow, there were certainly real Canaanites of normal size outside of the uh, protective walls. Four types of giants roamed the woods and the mountains of Israel. And God needed a plan less dramatic than a global flood. So, who is to blame? I propose the Hyksos. A few centuries before Moses' birth, the Egyptian coalition crushed the foreign kings in a battle in the Sinai Peninsula. Unless it was the greatest battle ever, there were survivors. I speculate that the survivors settled in the Holy Land, just beyond the reach of Egypt. I've already established that I believe the Hyksos people serve epically dark deities, and after a loss, where would they turn? New gods? These gods could be dressed up as Baal and Anath, El and Asherah, or they could have names lost to us. Ramses the Great seemed to recognize the power of these Canaanite gods when he named his daughter after Anath. Moses? He steered clear of his ancestral homelands when he was on the run. The Hebrews? <laughs> they chose to stay in Egypt, both free and later as slave, rather than go back to Canaan. So the folks in this time knew something was very, very wrong with Canaan. And God had a plan to fix it. But first, we needed to get Moses ready. I hope you've enjoyed Episode 5 of Examining Moses by Jason Lee Willis. Check out my website or Facebook page, Jason Lee Willis Novels, for ordering the book or for more audio podcasts. The music you've been listening to today is provided by YouTube's audio library.